Letter to my black son. Son, first let me say how much I love you with all my heart and more, unconditionally, without limits. Secondly, let me apologize for not being there with you 24 hours a day to protect you from certain individuals sworn to protect you and uphold the law. This is not what I had planned for your life moving to Minnesota. As a single parent, I brought you here from what was then ranked as the most segregated city in the nation to Minnesota for more opportunities, education, and a chance. I wonder if I have failed you now because this is just as bad, if not worse. You are an adult now and my heart aches. The tears of fear for you have ripped my soul to pieces. We have all been so traumatized and paralyzed over the state of our black sons that we can no longer sleep, eat, or laugh. I did not sleep last night, and today I am numb but in great pain. I apologize for not having an explanation for these senseless murders or explaining why you have had to witness a public execution. Your safety is my number one priority, and I want you to remember our talk in interacting with the police. The same talk every mother with a black son has had to have. It is very relevant today, like it was yesterday and the day before. Again, I apologize for subjecting you to this bullshit. Love, Mama. That was Kalander Rovering, a lawyer, an entrepreneur, and our guest on Counter Stories today. This is Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Halil Lee, owner of The Other Media Group. I'm Anthony Galloway, executive director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora and senior partner at Dendros Group. I'm Cindy Morales-Garcia, one of the co-founders of the Courageous Change Collective, a consulting group that really helps support the work of racial justice. Luz Maria Frias and Don Eubanks, our usual crew members, cannot join us today. And our special guest joining us this week, Calandra, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, everyone. My name is Calandra Revering. I'm an attorney and my office is Revering Law and Consulting. Well, where do we start? We started Counter Stories seven years ago, um, talking about the death of Michael Brown at the hands of police. The officer who shot him, Darren Wilson, was not charged with any crime. Since then, we've talked about Jamar Clark, Philander Castile, George Floyd, and others who have lost their lives after interacting with police. So I'm not going to go over why it's wrong to be killed by those who took an oath to serve and protect. Instead, I want to talk about the patterns that we are seeing with the latest shooting in Brooklyn Center. Brooklyn Center police officer Kimberly Potter shot and killed Dante Wright on April 11th. She said she meant to pull her taser. She's a 26-year-old veteran, or she's a 26-year veteran and will face second-degree manslaughter charge in the killing of Dante Wright. The charge carries a maximum penalty of 10 years in prison. For both Calandra and Cindy, you guys aren't that far. You're both in Brooklyn Park. Um, What have you been seeing? What have you been experiencing? You know, when I went home Monday evening and I drove past the Super America and Holiday Gas Station, which is in Brooklyn Center, I live probably about five to seven minutes 
from there. By the time I got home, I saw multiple Facebook posts about how the two gas stations that I had just driven by were just looted and there were people climbing out of uh, out of the windows, in and out of the windows. You know, I've been living in Brooklyn Park for probably about maybe 16 years now. And um, I, I would say Brooklyn Park and Brooklyn Center will, will never be the same. Mm. You know, I've had my incidents with Brooklyn Park and Brooklyn Center police. And my son has been pulled over multiple times in Brooklyn Park. And I think that the thing that saved my son the most in Brooklyn Park was the fact that his license plates were in my name. Mm. And when they would run my plates and ask him, who is Calandra Reverend? He would say, that's my mother and she's a lawyer. And they would leave him alone. But, you know, there are many Black people that don't have that luxury to say their mother's a lawyer. I know that he's been very scared. And I know that what has happened, each time this happens in Minnesota, I grow more and more fearful about him living here. When we moved here in 1998, Milwaukee was the most segregated city in the nation. When he was born, um, I I can remember that uh, a police officer killed a a black man uh, right across the street from where I lived. And I made the commitment then that somehow I was going to get him out of Milwaukee so that he would not be subjected to death by hands of an officer. And too many times we see non-compliance as a reason to kill. Hmm. And bringing him here, I thought that would make a difference. My son, he knows my fight. And even when he was when he was four, um, I started a march in Milwaukee uh, because a, a, a black woman who was pregnant was beaten by some store patrons. And we marched that store for a year and a half. And there were there were state representatives, aldermen mm. out there marching. I've marched at UW Milwaukee, banning uh, books that that said that. Black people were inferior. Um, so my son understands what what we've gone through. I, I really do feel like I failed him. And as a mother, you, you know, you want the best for your children. You feel like your job is to protect them. And you send them out, out here in the world. And the, there are other people who are supposed to protect them. And they are killing our children, both black men, women. Um, And this is so disheartening. I wrote that Facebook post because I felt like other people with black children could understand how I felt. And I, I phrased it in a certain way because there are many people that have black children who are biracial. Mm-hmm. One thing I notice here in Minnesota is that biracial children have been treated so poorly. Hmm. In in Milwaukee, we didn't dis- there was no distinction between biracial and black. 
right? Because historically we know one drop of black blood made you black. But it wasn't until I moved here that I found that they there was there seemed to be an identity crisis. They seemed to feel uh, thrown away and discarded from not only one race, but both races. So I wrote that to say there are many biracial children and they're still black and they're still being killed. And, and there are even white people here that have adopted black children. We've all had to have the talk. This has to stop. This is not an issue of training. And I tell you, if I hear one more person say this is a training issue, they will get told off. This is a systemic problem. Across the U.S., we have 18,000, more than 18,000 police departments. 18,000. You can't retrain all of them. There, there is a, a blue wall that needs to be broken. And I'm going to tell you something, just pure stupidity and insensitive to the needs of others. You know, so I'm sorry. I, I kind of took over. I'm sorry. But <laughs> Don't so, apologize. So one of the things that we have to, and we talk about this on counter stories often, because, uh, because dominant narrative and dominant spaces don't carry the nuance and the consciousness that's required for true interracial discourse or true discourse from communities mm -hmm. of color and indigenous communities. We often have to take the time to set greater context which often leaves us in a space of never having enough time to truly make a point. I mean, say, talk to any, any native leader, you got to give a 10-minute history lesson just to understand one, one piece of comment or one question. So, so take your right. time, right? We, right? we have to, to take our space. Um, so I, I, take, please take your time. That letter that you wrote was, was, was powerful, um, you know, and, and it carried so much. It made me, your, your comment about um, biracial or multiracial identity um, is something that I think is very, very important. Um, one of the things uh, I was, as a as a part of ministerial staff and part of the uh, Twin Cities interfaith chaplains that were doing some 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 work, kind of supporting folks on the ground and, and kind of helping to bear witness. And one of the things that was asked to do was to be there at the vigil on Monday and help to create a, a little bit of a buffer for the family so they could actually have their moment at the site and, and then to offer some prayer. One of the things that was spoken was by Dallas, Dante's brother, who's white. What really struck me, just to say, because words are starting to, to run, run all over the place now, is when he got up, right? to speak in the mic, the family was mustering every ounce of energy they could beyond their grief just to correct narrative, just to focus on, mm -hmm. on combating what you called out in your, in your statement around the narrative in general, but specifically about his brother. Because he already saw the machine, the mythos that is here that has to, because of the shame <laughs> that is here in, in our, and in, in, in who we are in Minnesota. Let's just name name that space. We've got some things to deal with and the shame can often cause us to recreate a reality that allows for that to be okay. And so we see the mechanisms already trying to vilify 
Dante, and and he had to muster everything he could beyond just grieving, just to muster, put words together to start speaking at that. And one of the things he said is, I under he, he said, I understand full well that I would still be alive, and my brother's not. And that it, it was like it was like it 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 just it a wave went over, um, a wave went over the folks that were gathered there. Realization, and I think your 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 words kind of kind of get at that. That there's we have to come to terms with the myth with the mythos that we have created for ourselves around policing, around how we engage as communities and about Minnesota and, and who we say we are versus what our data tells us we are. And so I, I thank you for your words in that regard. Um, it, was, it was powerful. My, my letter to my son, it's rooted in the racism that we've experienced. However, my son is also gay. You know, he has to run from the police and he has to run from other folks who have issues with gay people. And in our house, when he was in high school, he went to high school in Champlin. But in Brooklyn Park, our house was a haven. Gay and lesbian kids, our house was a safe house. Mm. So I, I really tried to make my son's space a better place by fighting in court and then coming home and now I got to fight you. It's, it's, it's so hard and it is tiring. You know, if you ever get a chance, um, there's a documentary that was produced by Phil Prospers called Justice Forgotten. And I'm featured on that documentary talking about the trauma that affects the entire family when a policeman kills a Black person. Just the trauma of, one, they've lost a loved one. The children that they leave behind, even Dante, even George Floyd, and a host of other men and women killed by police, the children they leave behind. Mm. Look at how you stunted their potential success because they are grieving. And then another segment of the documentary I'm discussing how how one feels trauma just going to the courthouse. Mm. If you look at the statistics in Minnesota, only about 10% of the court staff are minority. So just imagine how you're treated going to the information counter, talking to the clerk. Just that tense, that tense feeling that you have. Then the judge comes out, judge don't look like you and me most of the time. You may have a public defender. They don't look like you and me. And when you say, I was pulled over because I was black, who believes you? My son made a post about uh, when he, all the times that he's been pulled over, the officer had his hand on his gun. This woman chimed in and said, uh, she said, I'm not trying to argue, but the same thing has happened to me. You know I went in on her, right? <laughs> Not only did I go in on her, some other people joined in and helped me. And specifically um, because the, the the pattern, right? We we have this false this false sense of minimization that says because I experienced yeah. something once, your your call out of a pattern is invalid. Yeah, yeah. You're you're normalizing racism mm -hmm. because what you're doing is you're minimizing and you're marginalizing my experience as a black man and how how I feel. 
And and, and I, I also said in the post, if this somebody who says they're your friend, they're not your friend. Because a friend will listen. But when they start minimal and normalizing what has happened to you, you don't get it. You don't get it. This is this is historical. We've been traumatized for years. And and, and it's called white privilege. Cindy, how about you? Have you what has this experience been like for you? I mean, I think all of our listeners have heard me and Anthony talk about going through this time and time again. Uh, but I'm interested to hear, hear especially w- with you being uh, in Brooklyn Park. Woo! I mean, I hope everyone who's listening with us can just take a deep breath with us right now. There's just so much we're holding. I so appreciate what you were sharing, Calandra, because, you know, it made me think if I were to name this episode, I would name it All We Wanted Was Life for Our Children. And, you know, my week, it's been a heavy week. Let me just be real. It's been hard. It's been so hard. I Sunday night found out that um, my uncle passed away from COVID in Guatemala. Ugh. So I went to bed with, you know, just thinking about death and unnecessary death. I have all mm. these thoughts and feelings for another time about just how you know, COVID is playing out globally, what countries get the privilege of vaccines and which ones don't. So I was thinking about that. And then I woke up the next day and to the, to the news of the horrific murder of Dante Wright. And it's just like unnecessary, systemic, unjust death. Like it was just so much. I so appreciate how you, you shared the story of what you, you wanted life for your son. You didn't just want him to survive. You wanted life. Wanted life, quería vida completa, complete life for your son. And that's a, a similar story that my, my parents have gifted me. You know, we came from Guatemala in the early 90s, uh, fleeing civil war. And they just time and time again would tell me these stories where they're like, we just wanted life for you. It was life or death for us. You know, we just wanted life for you and, and not just to survive because we might have been able to figure out how to survive, but we wanted you to be able to study, to grow, to dream, to not be stuck. And this is the only story you can have surviving civil war. And, you know, my parents grew up having to sell their labor. They're like, we wanted life for you. That was their audacious dream. And so they came you know, this whole American dream, they wanted life. And so I think of moments like this, when I'm afraid to leave my home, because a curfew is being called. And, you know, I remember over the summer with the racial uprising, uh, with the murder of George Floyd, you see the National Guard is called in and the helicopters are coming. And all of a sudden, it brings up for me these like ancestral memories and my own personal memories of being in Civil War Guatemala. Like I thought we wanted life. I thought we wanted something different. It's a part of, you know, how white supremacy cultivated um, that exploitation and the civil war. The U.S. was very involved in all that in Guatemala. That didn't just go away. That was still here. And it's still coming for our communities in lots of ways. And so I've definitely been struggling, you know, being in the community, just just being like, wow, like as as an immigrant, we fled war and it's still here. And, you know, because I think sometimes of how anti-Blackness plays out in my Latinx family and in my community, we want to be like, that's not, that's not us. We're trying not to get targeted, right? We're, 
that's some, yeah. that's another community, you know, we're not trying to hang out with black folks or whatever. And I'm like, no, like that is us. We are them and they are us. And we may have the privilege of not having the darker skin. Not all of us. I definitely have Afro Latina family, but they're coming for all of us. Like our story that, that led my mother to say, I want life for my daughter is, you know, has the same roots and the same oppression and the same evil as your story saying, I want life for my son. That's why I'm moving to Minnesota. And I, and it's just, it breaks my heart. It just breaks my heart. So I feel like today, um, I'm tired of just that yearning for life. And it feels like no matter what we do, we still, we have to keep audaciously insisting on that for ourselves and for each other. And I think that that's why it hurts so much to figure out how to enter these dialogues where people were like, yes, but you know, here's why he deserve it or here's what he did wrong. And I'm just like, why do I have to work so hard to convince you all? I'm a human being that just really wants to live. And why do I have to start the conversation with just proving that I'm deserving to have my life and that we do that as black and brown folks, as indigenous folks, as Asian folks. And if we can't, if that's where we have to start the conversation, I'm already tired, man. Like we have, I've been fleeing death since I was five years old. Since the Civil War, I've been fleeing death for generations because colonization has been happening in my mother country for generations. So if we can't even start there with just a basis of our humanity that a human being should not have been killed and specifically a black and brown, indigenous, Asian person of color, biracial human being should not have been killed. Like today, I just I don't have space. You've been listening to Counter Stories. I'm Halili with crew member Anthony Galloway and our guests Cindy Morales-Garcia and Kalander Revering. Support for this show is provided by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. So I, I want to dig in a little bit on some of, on, on the, you know, give a little bit of history as well as talk about some patterns that we're seeing. The, this officer or former officer, Kimberly Potter, who resigned, she's being charged with um, second-degree manslaughter. Former officer Chauvin in the uh, George Floyd murder is also facing that charge, along with, with several others. Calandra, can you just help us understand what that means, second-degree manslaughter? Well, second-degree manslaughter is, uh, there's still negligence. But what second-degree manslaughter is saying that you've created a situation that was so reckless and, and negligent that someone died. But, but just know that most of the time, prosecutors, they, they charge the low charge, the, the lowest that they know they can prove. Mm. If the defendant doesn't want to plead guilty, the defendant wants a trial, most of the time, charges are at, increased charges are added with a higher penalty. My hope here is that, in theory, that this is a starting point. We are not happy. And when I say we, I'm talking about the angry public because I'm angry. Mm. I'm not happy with second-degree manslaughter. I think second-degree uh, murder would be appropriate, second-degree depraved heart murder, because what you have to show is that the person had a depraved heart at the time of the murder. That can be tough. Jury trials are always tough. But I don't believe 
that shouting taser, taser, taser means that you actually intended you were going to pull a taser. I don't believe it. I think that was a cover for what she want. She actually wanted to do. So um, the charge carries 10 years in prison. Now, in 2017, I think we all remember um, Justine DeMond, who was shot and yeah. killed by Somali-American Minneapolis officer Mohammed Noor. He was charged with second-degree murder and third-degree murder and was sentenced to 12 and a half years in prison. Then in 2018, when Dallas patrol officer Amber Geyer entered the wrong apartment and ended up killing Botham John, um, she was found guilty and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. And then we just learned that Officer Rustin Shesky, who shot Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, will not face discipline for his actions. So this brings up for me, I mean, it seems for me at least, like women and officers are co- of color are charged and sentenced while white officers get away with it. I mean, I'm seeing this trend. You know, when Officer Noor was was being tried, multiple lawyers asked me, what did I think was going to happen? I say he's going to be convicted. Now, let me let me preface that by saying most of these were white lawyers. And they, they said, no, he, he's going to be acquitted. And I said, why? They said, well, officers aren't typically convicted of, of anything. My perspective was he will be convicted because he's a black officer who killed a white woman. Out of, I'd say, 30 people who asked me that question as to what I thought would happen, I was the only one who was right. The officer uh, you just mentioned in Kenosha that shot uh, Jacob, He's at, he's back on duty. That says a lot. And it and it's Wisconsin, which that tells you exactly why I uh had to get my son out of there. You know, a lot of a lot of folks uh also don't know that there's an officer in Waukesha, Wisconsin, which is a first ring suburb out of Milwaukee. In the past five years, he has shot five black people. And he's still on the force. As you name these patterns, there's there's a couple of things that are are coming to mind. One of them is not just the pattern of who's convicted and who's not, who fits the 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 story that needs to be upheld. Because if that's if if I, if this mythos doesn't continue to exist, then I have to then I have to come to terms with all of the implications of that. And I think there's a whole lot of folks who, who are in a place of comfortability, not just to not have to, the privilege of not having to pay attention, but the, but the, but the implication of accepting the truth of folks who are actually experiencing it and the implication it has around everything else about my world, this facade begins to crumble. And I think one, you know, one of the things that uphold this particular pattern that you named around who as an officer gets convicted and who hasn't in, in, in our recent times is part of the upholding of that. And, and, and I also think it speaks to our Minnesota mythos as well. We kind of have a cultural, cultural mythology here in Minnesota of exceptionalism. Um, Fortune 500 companies, kids scoring all these, graduating at these rates and scoring all these things on ACTs and all of these different metrics which are metrics of compliance, right? We, we, we have, we, it is, I think our data definitely tells us that we have a lot of folks who do really, really well 
complying. But if you don't, if you aren't a part of that, that, that mythos, if you aren't in compliance with this, with this American mythos, but Minnesota has a particular version of it, you, you risk upsetting this, um, this false reality, um, which is part and parcel to so many folks' um, connection to this state. If I then accept this reality, if I accept the experience of the folks who are receiving the disservice, if I, if I walk over to this area, that means that this world that I've built for myself is not real. And I think there's a whole lot of folks who, who just can't do that, that, just, that that's too heavy a lift and have to start doing things like getting on your son's Facebook page um, of, of supporting and thinking about the conviction of folks who are outside of that power structure and upholding those who, who, who aren't. This is why we get white male officers having different outcomes than women and, um, and people of color. And so I, I, think, I think there's, some, there's something in this, in this mix that is trying to uphold that because of the, the implications of accepting this reality are just too big. Mm-hmm. Can and I, that's extremely concerning for me. Can I add something to what you just said, Anthony? I irritate a lot of people here in Minnesota with my perspective. I tell Black people, the ones that are, you know, they, they've either been here a long time or born and raised, and there are certain ones, not all of them are like this, but I tell them, you all are so afraid to speak up. I said, you have this, this, this persona, this attitude that Master has allowed us to come here and get jobs and houses. We don't want to make Master mad. So, and they accept all of this abuse. And I don't understand it. And they get so upset at me when I say it. Explicit and implicit racism to microaggressions. They, they let it all ride. And, and, and guess what they do? They pass it on to their children. And now their children are afraid to speak up. And I tell them, I'm sorry, I didn't raise my son like that. And and that's another reason why I get scared, because I have raised him to speak up. And I'm afraid that 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 mouth, that assertiveness, that refusal to, to take, like I said, this bullshit may get him shot. I don't think I've gotten a good night's sleep in he's 27 now, so I could say probably 20 years. Just fear because I'm afraid of that call that every mother is afraid of, that that Dante's mother received. And, and just to picture her at home and he's calling her and she can't be there, that's the worst that's what prompted her to, to make that statement. When she said, my heart is broken to a thousand pieces, yes. it was in referencing to remembering that moment yes. where she's on the other side of the phone and the realization that there's a possibility that came true happened. And that's why I said in my post, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't be there with you 24 hours a day to shield you from bullets, to just throw my body in the way. Because as a mother, that's what we would do. Literally, like the day before this happened, um, I was driving down my street and I noticed an, a Hmong woman driving uh, past me and she had everything dangling off her rearview mirror. And <laughs> I remember thinking, 
oh man, can she even see out of her window? Isn't it illegal to, to have that? But then again, I've never known anybody who's been pulled over for that. My husband's had a, a little thing dangling off his rearview mirror as long as I've known him. And that has never been an issue. Even when we've been pulled over for speeding or whatever else, it's never been brought up that you shouldn't have that there. And so it makes me think of, of just even the, the reason for pulling him over was just so ridiculous. You know, just a few months ago, about three or four months ago, I told my son he had like some kind of chain or something hanging from his rearview mirror. And I told him, take it down. And he argued with me about why he should take it down. And I had to explain to him, that's a reason to pull you over. Reluctantly, he took it down. But I, for me to have that talk with him, I know what can happen. And that is the talk. That's part of the talk. Don't have anything hanging in, from your rearview mirror. Wear your seatbelt. A seatbelt, our Supreme Court has said, a seatbelt is a valid reason to pull someone over. Our Supreme Court has said, even if you have, and the reason I know this is because I, 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 I had the same issue for a contested hearing. If you have someone in your car, someone in the back seat, and they turn around and look at the police, you know the police can pull you over? Yeah. And if you challenge that stop, you'll lose. The judge will find some way to say the police had a valid reason to pull you over. Mm. I know because I did it. And I lost. <laughs> that What you said boggles my mind and it's calling up so many memories. I, I remember um, for a part of my college, I stayed with my godmother. And it's funny, my godmother um, <laughs> and my godbrother and my godsister, my godbrother was a witness for the prosecution. Uh, Mr. Williams is my godbrother, and I remember in, growing in the up Chauvin trial. and being in college in the Chauvin trial. Yeah, Donald used to whoop my behind as a wrestler growing up. Um, I was in college, and he would show me all these wrestling moves by pinning me and messing me up, um, you know, humbling me a little bit. But I remember walking home. I had um, crossed as a member of Cap Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated, Divine Nine Black Fraternity. I had my red Letterman jacket on with white sleeves. And this is the, 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 the interesting part of this is I'm walking oblivious over on 40th and Fremont, walking after getting off the bus, coming, 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 coming home, um, proud. I got slacks on. Um, I got a fresh cut. I got this super bright red jacket on on 40th and Fremont. Yeah, I should have known better. But what was funny is um, some, some, some OGs rolling looked at me and we're able to recognize this letterman's jacket, this Greek letterman's jacket. And instead of stop trying to figure out why I'm wearing these colors in this area, they're like, "Get go ahead, get that education, young blood. Like they're shouting out, shout, shoot, like chopping me up. And I'm feeling good. Like my bounce was heavy. A block and a half away, I get stopped and inspected by police officers. Um, as I hear over the radio that the person that they're look actually looking for is six foot six. I'm five nine. Has a had a blue down coat. I'm wearing a, a red leather Letterman's jacket. Um, just no way that I fit that description. But figured out a way to stop me. On one hand, I can be wearing colors in somebody else's territory, and they have the wherewithal to know and put together the context of who I am and what I'm on, and 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 look out for me 
in ways that law enforcement doesn't. Mm. Just looking for a way to inspect and investigate mm-hmm. me. And this is not a pattern that's just in policing. This pattern exists in every office that I've worked in that's been predominantly white. Whenever I we'd gather at the University of Minnesota, when there was a bunch of folks, the suspicion rises. This is part of our, our, our mythos in Minnesota, right? Investigating compliance or non-compliance of people of color is part of who we are. So as we as we start to wrap up here, I'm a, I'm the producer of this show and I have to name our episodes and I'm really bad at naming our episodes. So Cindy, thank you for the the recommendation. Um we want life. And I just want us to to end on that and thinking from all of our perspectives, from all of our communities. My parents came here as refugees because they wanted a good life. They wanted a life for their children. They bought into um, the American dream. I think my mom used to give us a lot of, of crap when we were younger, but about not being like the good daughter or whatever. But now um, she recently was like, I'm, I'm, I was lucky. Like you guys are all like here and educated and have jobs. And we're like, yeah, mom. And she's like, this is exactly why we came here. You know, and even for like my, my husband, my husband's white. Um, he's not all white, right? He, he had a great, his great grandfather was black. Um, he's mix of, you know, Eastern European and Western European. Like nobody is not a immigrant of some sort or descendant from immigrants, unless you're an indigenous Native American. You know, we, we need to all understand that we just want life. And so as we end on that, I just want to hear from each of you this message of life from your perspective as a Latina, as a lesbian, as a mother, as a Black man, as a person in the ministry. Just let me hear about what it is that we want when we say we want life. I believe when we say we want life, as a Black woman with a Black son who is also gay, who is married to a man who is both black and white, um, who also has a brother who is all white. We want pure life. And pure life to me means being respected for who we are, no matter our background, no matter our race, no matter our religion or ethnicity. And life means understanding that every life has value. That's what that means to me. Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I, when I think of that, I think about how for me, you know, a phrase that that often comes to mind is like, you know, that we, that I'm just, that we're trying to just lean into what the ancestors always wanted for us, which was life whole whole life in its fullness and for me full life um isn't on an island right and so when I think about this conversation I think about how for me to have full life that means the community as well that means all the systems whether they're formal systems of education or our informal systems of family you know that the systems are healthy and are committed to my thriving full life as I'm committed to to the whole. I'm very, very communal. And so I think sometimes these topics and conversations, 
can be hard for me because it comes down to just like too much of an individual lens. We think, you know, we think the American dream is just individuals being able to choose individual things for themselves. It comes down to personal responsibility, right? Because one of the mental models of white supremacy is individualism, hyper-individualism. I think we see that as a pattern here of, you know, who's getting convicted and who's not, who's getting protected and who's getting scapegoated, right? It doesn't surprise me that, you know, women and folks of color are getting scapegoated for the whole system because they were never really included. They never really belonged, you know? So it's easy to scapegoat, you know, just, um, it's tokenism, right? It's easy to scapegoat those that you never that a dominant culture never really claimed as belonging to them. Because if they really belonged to all those systems, they would have been protected in a way they weren't. And it leaves us in this place of just individual responsibility, like somehow we're going to get justice uh, for Dante Wright and everybody, you know, throughout history, if this one individual gets convicted or not, without thinking about, there was a whole system, a whole lot of individuals that created this, that need to be held accountable so whether one individual gets convicted or not, that's not like that's important. It has important implications. And if we only look at that individual responsibility, we're missing the entire ecosystem that is just cultivating toxicity, that is just drowning in its own toxicity. So when I want life, I need us to shift together so the whole ecosystem that we're all a part of can be well not just a life where I can make individual choices, because that's a myth. It's a lie, as if I can, I live and exist completely disconnected from all of you, as if my well-being is disconnected, or even just my choices are just mine alone. That's not true. So I want whole, lush, abundant, interconnected life that looks at all the systems in which we are a part of, and where we all hold responsibility, collective responsibility for our collective well-being together. I think. Um for me, a, a whole, um, that's just such a deep question. Thank you, Lee. <laughs> and I mean that facetiously because it's forcing me, it's causing me a little bit of anxiety because um, as, as the picture forms in my mind, what also comes right, screaming right in is all the reasons why that picture is not true. And so that's happening to me right now. One aspect of full life for me is being free specifically to not constantly be living for the comfort and the understanding of white people. That's one aspect. Mm. There's, there's multiple mm-hmm. facets to it. But that causes a level of stress and anxiety that you may not even be aware of. This is, this is how, you know, this is how folks end up with friends, you know, for years and then something happens and they say, well, you never told me that. Well, yes, I did in many different ways. Or, um, it's because part of my my acquiescence to living in a particular area requires my silence or my minimizing of my my real experience to deny or ignore this joke or that pattern and all those things. The little simple trade-offs that we give, we give away over time for this mythos of what dream life in America should look like. And so I think for me, it's it's that one aspect of not not having to expend any energy in the comfort of, of dominant cultural power. Thank you. Thank you for that, you guys. Um, well, this has been uh, another episode of Counter Stories. We want to thank our special guests today um, for sitting in with us. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group. 
I'm Anthony Galloway, Senior Partner at Dendros Group and Executive Director of Arts Us. Cindy Morales-Garcia, co-founder of the Courageous Change Collective. And our special guest today. Thank you, Holly. And I'm Calandra Revering of Revering Law and, Law and Consulting. Thanks for joining us. This program is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.